I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible gospel to our hearts, our souls, our hope, and our walk. And before we pray... Listen to the words of Jesus to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. Believe also. In me. That word believe, pistuo in the Greek, is the same word as the noun pistis that is in our passage. And the unfolding of faith or belief in our text, it leads to the same promise of Jesus that we just heard. Look at the last sentence in our passage in the middle of verse 16. It begins with the word, therefore. In other words, because of faith that is laid out in verses 13 to 16, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For or because He has prepared for them a city. The most important question in the universe is, how does God feel about you? The idea of being ashamed here, which he's not ashamed of them, it's startling. Because God never does or acts ever. He never does anything for which he is ashamed of doing it. 
When he says, I'm not ashamed of them, I'm not ashamed of Abraham, he is clearly saying, I am, I'm pleased to be called Abraham's God. I'm pleased to be called Jacob and the Apostle Paul's and Kathy's, Sonia's and Chris's and Bob's and Jeannie's and Michael's and Matt's. God, I am pleased to be called the God of all who live by faith. So as we look at the text, let's see it through the eyes of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that we're meant to see it, to see the beauty of a better country, precisely heaven, the future, the consummation of the kingdom that Jesus promised. And as we do, let's ask God to fill our hearts, our souls, with the vision of the beauty of Jesus himself. Father, would you do this? As you lay out the, the very nitty-gritty of Christianity here, may we believe it, may we live it, may we be impacted by it. May you work in us by your Spirit, weaning us from our sinfulness and our, our, our worldliness. May you draw us near powerfully by your Spirit. Bring us from one degree of vision of glory to another. Through his name and to his glory. Amen. All right, notice verse 13 begins with these words. These all died in faith. So what he's doing, he's, re he's recapping something about the faith of of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, who, who lived in tents with Abraham in verse 9. And so he says, these all, they all died, literally, in, in a way that accords with faith. Then he further explains what it is in, in the text right in front of us. What do you mean they died in faith? He, he does it by showing us the way they died in faith, saying, I mean, they died not having received the promises. At least not all of them, and the most important ones, and his point is that the promises of God are mainly not for this world. The big ones, the core. In other words, the gospel of Jesus is not the gospel of your best life now. Let's read verse 13 as a whole. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having thus acknowledged 
that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what Abraham and these people of faith are doing, according to the writer. They did not experience the fullness of these promises, but they found faith, a joy in the expectation of them in the future that impacted them in a drastic way. And the same is true of all believers. God has promised us eternal life in Christ. And like the patriarchs, every one of us in this room will die. And it's one thing for the world to scoff at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But it's another thing. It's a shameful thing when, when pastors or church leaders teach. And I, I experienced this in my own life sitting in church. That, that teach that pie in the sky, sweet by and by. Now, come on. Now, we want heaven now, down here, during this time. As if it's dumb. Implying that that pie in the sky is not at the very heart of the gospel of the Christian life. I think C.S. Lewis's perspective is much more at the heart of the biblical gospel when he wrote back in 1940 in his book, The Problem of Pain, these words. Scripture habitually puts the joys of heaven into the scale against the sufferings of earth. And no solution of the problem of pain which does not do so can be called a Christian one. We are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We are afraid of the jeers about pie in the sky. But either there is pie in the sky or there's not. And if there's not then Christianity is false. For this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. He's right. This is at the heart of what saving faith is. You look at the promises of what is off in the distance, and you say, wow. I welcome that. How he uses the word here. I, I greet you, yes, into my heart. That's faith. And yet, between every one of you who has faith in Christ, this biblical saving faith right now, between you and that faith and those promises, 
there's an imaginary line. Just like we have imaginary lines with globes called longitude and latitude. If you go up in space and look down, they're not there. And that imaginary line between faith in those promises and those promises is death. The most significant promises are on the other side of that line. At a distance, but on this side of the line, those who are of Christ see them, greet them from afar. And so you confess or acknowledge there's nothing complete in this mortal life. There's nothing completely Saved, yet here on this side of the line. Not your mind, not your memory, not your, not your battle against sin, not health, physical health, not your bank account, nothing. And that reality of saving faith that looks beyond the line. That's what makes you different from those who aren't in Christ. That's the way he puts it. That's what makes you a stranger, a sojourner away from your whole land, an exile. You're not at home. You're, you're in the world. But you're not of the world. So hear it again. I read slowly verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. There's the faith. And greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. On the earth, away from home. Literally, the Greek, I think the more literal translation would be, they were confessing, that word acknowledged is confessing. Confessing what? Confessing what faith caused them to know. What is that? We don't belong here. Our homeland is there. We live for it. We're strangers. We're exiles on the earth, away from our home. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, and then he sojourned with Isaac and Jacob in tents. That's his model, that's his picture, that's his analogy. Listen to how the man of faith, King David himself, hundreds of years later, makes this connection with his own life of walk with Yahweh. In Psalm 39, 12, he, he prays, Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. 
because I am a stranger or sojourner with you, a guest here like all my fathers. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3.20. Christian, our citizenship is really not here. It's not our homeland on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the Apostle Peter's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Hear his theology in his first epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. You've been exiled from your homeland. He goes on, called to an inheritance on the other side of that imaginary line of death. Called to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading on the other side of the line, kept in heaven for you. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The point is that that's what saving faith is. You no longer blend in. That's the way the examples he lays forward, he says, they died in faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and thus confessing that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Now, in verse 14 to 16, the writer, like, like, like a coroner, he starts to cut open the heart of faith. And he says this in verse 14. For those people who speak this way, that is, in other words, who confess their sojourners, strangers, or exiles on earth. For those kind of people who, who, who speak thus, they make it clear that they are seeking something else. A homeland. Those living by faith are seeking a homeland. 
That's why they're exiles or sojourners here. They were born, and all of us were born into this world. But what he's referring to here is that they or we who are in Christ have been born again. Born from above. Born from heaven. Isn't that what happened to you when you were transformed? Baptized Christian? If you were transformed, what happened? Like a baby coming out of a womb, sees light. We saw light. And thus we greeted the promises of the gospel as our treasure. And we realized, look at that. I'm changed. I'm a believer. I know this is true. Oh, and you look at the Bible. That, that born-again thing, that's what happened to me. And thus, the grip that you once had on the world is released in order to lay hold of the future promises of real, eternal happiness. And now the writer, he restates that. He restates the seeking, seeking, going after a homeland by being more specific about it in verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But the point is, they weren't. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, living in tents, owning no property. Why did they choose to live this way? Verse 16 gives the answer. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's faith. It's a life that seeks a country. It desires a better country, a heavenly country. Faith at its core, it considers this world, but then it considers the gospel and its promises. And faith desires the promises over the world. Faith seeks another country that is far off. It sees it. It greets it. And it rejoices that I am a stranger now. I'm an exile down here. This is not it. That's Christianity. That's saving faith. That's faith in the gospel. 
Just listen to how the Apostle John, he says the same thing in very different words, but here's how the Apostle John says this same thing in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Christian, baptized person, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Hear it. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but... Whoever does the will of God abides or remain forever. Because that's the better country. New birth by the Holy Spirit creates that faith. And thus it produces aliens. Sojourners, exiles, who are alienated from the worship and love of the world. So if our love for God is being cooled down this morning, it's because our love for the world has crept in began to choke out our love for God. Because worldly things are like donuts. God is steak and vegetables. And the more one eats of donuts, the more they come to the table, like this morning, of steak and salad, not hungry. The Apostle Peter's remedy for that in the Christian life is 1 Peter 2, 1-3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy. And all slander and like newborn infants desire the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed it's true that you have tasted, haven't you, that the Lord is good. Faith picks up the promises of the Word of God and it is energized. And as those promises of the Gospel, the true Gospel, as they draw near to our souls and to our minds, the less desirable the world of donuts becomes. See if you hear it again as I read. Verses 14 to 16. For people who speak this way, them stranger and an alien, they make it clear 
that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And that brings us back to where we started. To the word, therefore, in the middle of verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. So now can we see why is it that God's not ashamed to be called the God of those who live by faith? He gives the answer right there. Why God? For he has prepared for them a city. That's why. He's not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared for them a city. That's still not clicking for me. What are you talking? How is that a reason why he's not ashamed? Well, the answer is because of the larger context. So just bring in what came right before the therefore. The beginning of verse 16. And then it clicks. Because, that's the, that's the logic of it. Okay, so because they desire a better country... That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared for them a city. The logic is simple. God made a city for them as Jesus said. I wouldn't have told you that I go away and prepare a place for you if I didn't mean it. Okay, God made this city for them, but this, that doesn't make... That's, he's not necessarily pleased yet. The point is this. They, the, these persons, desire that city. That's why he's not ashamed, but very thrilled to be called their God. Do you want God to be unashamed of being your God? I hope every one of us would say yes. Okay, what do, we, what do we do? You just work harder? You just buck up and perform better? The answer is no. It's not what you do. The answer is very simple. It's not simplistic, though. It's simple, and it's miraculous. You desire. Desire the city that he has made for you. Desire it over all that the world offers you apart from God. Why is it that God is unashamedly happy about those persons who want him, desire him. Because when you desire something, you call attention to it. 
And God is by his nature very much about calling attention to himself. He does nothing without his ultimate goal of glorifying his honor and himself. To use a worldly example, we actually haven't had him in a while, so you might think about it, honey. When she's going to make chicken enchiladas, one of my favorite meals she makes, they're so good. You've got to taste them. Okay, I desire them. Now think about it. My desire, my hunger for those wonderful chicken enchiladas that my wife makes is zero reason for me to boast. It wouldn't make any sense. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look how great I am that I love her chicken enchiladas. Doesn't make any sense. This is why the Apostle Paul just constantly drilled home in the very few letters that we have of his that it is faith which destroys all human boasting. Because at its core, it is desire. At its core, it is a response to God, to His Son, to the cross, to the promises on the other side of the line. And therefore to say, I deserve nothing, but that's great and I look to that. Who would ever look at that person and say, they're fantastic. No, they look at my wife and they say, what a wonderful cook. And those enchiladas are the thing when I start to rave about them, not me. And the whole point is, when God is honored through Christ for the, the, the essence of His being and the goodness that He is, He is pleased. And He's not ashamed to be called their God. Because that is but a reflection in the creature of His glory. He is glorifying Himself through the salvation of those whom He has given to His Son. So as I close, ask yourself, what am I seeking? What am I desiring? And to help us with that, it's allowed Jonathan Edwards, pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, back in the 1700s. Let's let him help us from his sermon that he titled, The Christian Pilgrim, Sojourner. Subtitled, they love subtitles. The True Christian's Life, A Journey Toward Heaven. He wrote this sermon in 1733. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. 
to go to heaven, fully to enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These all are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the fountain. These joys of earth are but drops. But God is the ocean. And therefore it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. As it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end or goal? and true happiness, end quote. So let us take the Lord's table this morning and ask Him to open our eyes more and more to the beauty of the better country as we partake of the bread and of the cup, remembering Jesus' words at the Last Supper. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day on the other side of the line when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom in the better country. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your nearness as your word has drawn near to us, as we have drawn near to it, and all by the nearness, the indwelling, and the presence of your Holy Spirit, you are good. Continue to work in our hearts to the glory of your name. We thank you for the wonderful gift of that heavenly country, your very presence. In Jesus' name, amen.